Dmitri Shostakovich was a remarkably modest man. He didn't often praise his own work. But in 1949, he wrote something rather striking in a letter to one of his closest friends, Isaac Glickman. During my bout of illness, or rather illnesses, I picked up the score of one of my compositions and read it through from beginning to end. I was astounded by its qualities and thought that I should be proud and happy that I had created such a work. I could hardly believe that it was I who had written it. A fair bit of reading between the lines is needed in that letter. For a start, we have to make out the identity of the work Shostakovich mysteriously describes as one of my compositions. Well, he did have reasons for guardedness. In the Soviet Union, one's letters could be opened at any time, and if it had been seen that one of Soviet Russia's foremost composers was praising his own Symphony No. 8, he would have had questions to answer, at the very least. The previous year, 1948, Shostakovich had been denounced, along with Prokofiev and Khachaturian, as a bourgeois formalist. And Shostakovich's Eighth Symphony had been especially singled out for its unhealthy individualism and pessimism. It was on the basis of this assessment that Shostakovich was branded an enemy of the people. And it got worse, as members of the Composers' Union queued up to add their own kopecks worth. Here's one choice contribution from a composer called Vladimir Zakharov. I consider that from the point of view of the people, the Eighth Symphony can in no way be called a musical composition. It is a composition which has absolutely no connection with the art of music. All right, that's quite an onslaught. Shostakovich seems to be reveling in deliberate harshness, violence. And it's all the worse, because that is in fact a horrible distortion of something which earlier in the symphony was tender, fragile and beautiful. That jerky, convulsive march theme on trumpets. That's a new version of the symphony's main first theme.
Transformation, development, such abstract terms hardly go far enough to describe the brutal makeover we heard a moment or two ago during the first movement's climactic central section. In context, it's more like watching something innocent and vulnerable being clubbed and trampled to death. And there are other moments during that massive central climax where the music seems to scream with horror and pain. Apart from cathartic, violent outbursts like that, there are other ways in which the long first movement of Shostakovich's Eighth Symphony expresses outpouring of pain. Though some of these are far removed from those grinding march rhythms and screaming, blinding orchestral colours, in passages like the following one, we sense something of the human cost in a kind of elegiac recitative for corps anglais. After the pounding, beating rhythms of the central climax, this music is almost timeless. It seems to float free above sustained tremolando dissonances on strings. It's so personal, it's so speaking in its eloquence, that you can almost imagine words. So given all this, Shostakovich's evasiveness in that letter of 1949, his refusal to name the work that had made him so proud and happy, is a little easier to understand. After all, this was music which politically had caused him so much trouble. Yet it's equally striking that he wants to express his pride to someone he knows will understand. Shostakovich was forced to make public recantations in 1948 to show willingness to repent of his artistic crimes and, with good reason, as a notorious earlier Pravda editorial had put it, things might end very badly for him. Yet in private, to a friend he trusts, Shostakovich says, I still believe in the Eighth Symphony. So why was it so important to him? Why was he so proud of a work which is capable of depicting such desolation and hideous violence? Well, it's partly, surely, because he does it so well. The Eighth Symphony is beautifully balanced. We have a superbly proportioned five-movement structure with a long first movement. The second movement, the one that follows that epic vision of desolation and violence, is a kind of parody march. Listening to music like this, it's easy to imagine goose-stepping soldiers... But at the same time, you can sense Shostakovich's wicked mockery.
next movement, the third, is an obsessive war machine. It invites comparison with the similarly obsessive inhuman rhythms of Holst's Mars. Gustav Holst suggests the monstrous element by setting his march in a five-to-a-bar rhythm, who marches in five beats. Here in the Eighth Symphony, Shostakovich also portrays inhuman regularity. We have continually clicking or pounding crotchets, like the running of an unstoppable piece of destructive machinery. Those regular crotchets go on right throughout this movement. The only respite comes when they're transformed into a marching brass umpa in the central section, the basis of a kind of thuggish parade ground ballet. Now, there's a rather striking echo of something that you may well have noticed there, the famous sabre dance from Khachaturian's ballet Guyana. Now, Shostakovich couldn't have known when he wrote his Eighth Symphony in 1943 that one day Aram Khachaturian would be pilloried alongside him. Perhaps he felt even prouder of that gesture after the denunciation. I mentioned the date of the symphony's composition. This is crucial, 1943. This is past the midway point in World War II, and just after that enormously important turning point on Russian soil, the Battle of Stalingrad. It left around two million people dead. The German forces were completely routed, and this was the real beginning of the turn of the tide against Hitler's invasion and of the war in general. When the Eighth Symphony appeared, some in the West called it the Stalingrad Symphony, the devastation, the unmistakable tragic tone, it all seemed to fit. After the military machine music we've just heard in the third movement comes another convulsive catastrophic outburst, after which we have an unmistakable sense of what follows catastrophe. Here, in the fourth movement of the Eighth Symphony, we have an unmistakable portrait of devastation, a terrible sense of loss. Yet the emotion is also contained 
by being cast in the very regular form of the passacaglia. That's a form that's built up on repetitions of a bass line, a bit like the 12-bar bass in blues. The bass line in question here is that unison theme we've just heard. It goes round and round, circling bleakly, just like the mind going over and over some terrible event in grief or trauma. Meanwhile, above that endlessly circling bass, we have solo lines like desolate improvisations, one of which is given to an instrument of which Shostakovich was a master, the piccolo. So, is Shostakovich's Eighth Symphony an outpouring of grief over the horror of World War II? The Nazi invasion, the destruction, so many lives lost, people today are still trying to come to terms with the numbers. Did Shostakovich want to provide expression for collective grief, to offer a catharsis, a purging of painful emotions, to help his people come to terms with what had happened to them? If so, was it, in the event, too raw? too soon, especially in the years immediately after the war, when, as so often, people wanted to forget the recent horror and turn to rebuilding their lives and their country. It sounds plausible, but I think it's a bit more complicated. It's worth remembering that that technique of brutalization that we heard in the first movement, taking a beautiful theme and pulverizing it, was already highly developed in symphonies that Shostakovich had written before the war. It comes to the fore in symphonies four and five, symphonies both written in the 1930s, the period which many Russians saw as the terror. It's very striking too, as several commentators have pointed out, that the form of the first movement of the Eighth Symphony, and indeed the character of some of its themes, strongly echoes the first movement of the Fifth Symphony. If that's deliberate, and I don't see how it can not have been, then Shostakovich seems to be saying to us, We've been here before. The destruction may be apocalyptic, the scale may be new, but in a sense it isn't new. That this is a depiction of destruction that began before the Nazi invasion. And that throws an interesting light on a possible reference at the climax of the finale, the fifth movement. At first, this last movement seems to want to do what Russia as a whole is probably wanting to do, to shrug off the horror. We have a bassoon tune, almost carefree, almost, that seems to say, well, life goes on. Thank you. 
But despite all the finale's best efforts, it seems the memory of what went before can't be forgotten. Eventually, the finale pulls itself up to a massively dissonant climax, strongly recalling the extreme high point of the first movement. But listen out for a unison brass figure, a sort of melodic phrase that emerges before the fury finally subsides. phrase I asked you to listen out for. For some, that strongly recalls the opening of a great 19th century Russian tragic symphony, Tchaikovsky's Manfred. If ever a work expressed what the Soviet authorities would have called unhealthy individualism and pessimism, it's Tchaikovsky's Manfred. It's a work about the ultimate Byronic guilt-tormented outsider. Is Shostakovich aligning himself with Manfred at this point? He certainly knew what it was like to stand outside, particularly in the years of his condemnation in the mid-1930s. But could he also be representing himself as struggling with his conscience, like Manfred? It would be inevitable if he'd questioned himself about his own role as the adopted bard of Soviet socialism, however unwillingly he'd fitted into the role. It might also be a reflection of what's sometimes called survivor guilt. Shostakovich did survive Stalin's Russia, but many of his fellow artists did not. Did he feel some of that guilt that those who are permitted to live apparently do feel? Yet Shostakovich is always full of paradoxes. Some are perplexing, some rather more smile-inducing. And there's one coming up. After this great, tragic and possibly self-revealing moment comes a lovely reversal. Life goes on again, and we have a moment of exquisite dark comedy that the great 19th century satirist and master of the surreal grotesque Nikolai Gogol would have loved. The dance of life begins again, 
only now it's led by the deep, intoxicated-sounding chortles of the bass clarinet. It's absolutely typical of Shostakovich to produce humour at the most extreme moments. In fact, it's generally a rather Russian trait. I've had some experience of people managing to tell jokes at what seem like the most extreme moments. Here, in the Eighth Symphony, it leads to a coda that I'm tempted to call visionary. Now we have profound stillness, and a three-note motif that's coloured so many of the themes in this symphony is now picked out on pizzicato violas and very low flutes, surrounded by ethereal string chords. Is it peace, or exhaustion, or both? Is it life goes on, or is that possible? This ending is hauntingly ambiguous, yet it's also a wonderfully calm ending to a symphony that's seen so much destructive violence and agonised grief. And indeed, after a symphony in which so much seems devastatingly explicit, the ending leaves us free to decide for ourselves what it means. And I like to imagine Shostakovich stealing a last look at the closing pages before shutting the score and writing to his friend Itzhak Glickman. In doing so, I can well understand why it made him so proud and even happy.